0: Hey, we're going to start a new sermon series called The Coming of the Comforter, and I just kind of want to share with you a little bit of why this stuff has been on my heart lately, and then uh, then we'll launch into the message proper. Um, there's a verse, I don't know if you've heard it before, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first few verses of 2 Timothy are actually very sobering. You know, Paul, he's writing about, you know what, in the last days people are going to be this way and that way, lovers of themselves, um, you know, things like this. And he's painting a picture that really just sounds like your daily news. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it sounds like today. And he says, in the last days, this is what it's going to be. And then he closes with this phrase in verse five. Maybe you've read it before. Having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power there. In other words, when Paul is painting this prophetic picture of the end time, he's not just painting a picture of godlessness. He's painting a picture of godliness that is emptied or drained of any significant spiritual power. It has the appearance of being like Christ yet lacking the spirit of Christ. And, it, you know, over the last few weeks I've been asking myself, is it possible that in the end Christians, followers of Jesus, those who claim to be followers of the Christ, that we are susceptible not just to living no, without the Spirit, but just... we're susceptible for settling for a substitute of the Spirit. You know, I've been studying with different groups of people um, on a weekly basis through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. It's been such a blessing. But, you know, over the last few weeks, I've just kind of been convicted, like, whoa, you know, when, especially when you look at Revelation chapter 13 and the trajectory of things that will be taking place. Um, man it just reminds me that there is a counterfeit Trinity. I don't know if you understand what I mean by that, but in revelation 12 and 13, you see a dragon and then a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. It's a counterfeit Trinity of the father, son, and Holy spirit. And, you know, we've kind of thrown the idea around of an antichrist. This is something that's been around for a long time. John writes about it in first in John and um, you know, obviously the prophets foretold it, but there's not only a substitute for Jesus Christ, but according to Revelation 13, there's a substitute for the Spirit of Christ. There is a substitute Holy Spirit, a counterfeit Holy Spirit, and so I've been thinking a lot about this. And there are many things that are initiated by this counterfeit Holy Spirit. And if you don't know what this is, then man, please let's study together. Um, but what ha- what that has just reminded me is my need, not just to understand that there is a counterfeit Holy Spirit, but my need for the experience of the genuine Holy Spirit in my life. Do you follow what I mean by that? Yeah? I mean, it's one thing to study what the counterfeit is, but it's another thing to experience the genuine. And I think it's prime time not just to understand, but to experience the work of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the summer, the rest of the summer, uh, my hope is that we'll explore the coming of the Comforter, you know, the prophecies about the Holy Spirit, what that means personally and practically, um, because I don't want to be that deflated balloon gene yeah (laughs) i want to be filled with the holy spirit not a substitute but the genuine deal and so that's what we're going to be looking at today uh part one we're looking at specifically the promise of the holy spirit and actually jesus calls it the promise of the father and that's what we're going to take a look at today i don't know if you've heard of this guy his name is rob kenny Rob, is uh, he lives in Bellevue, Washington, and um, he is called by some the internet's best dad. Uh, <laughs> I, I started reading this article, and um, yeah, sure enough, this guy knows what he's up to. Have you seen this from him before? Yeah, you've seen it before? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, apparently, you're not the only one. He's got... 2 million YouTube subscribers, okay? Uh, this guy, he knows what it's like to grow up without a dad. And so during this, uh, the, you know, the, the lockdown, the pandemic and stuff, he found himself with some extra time and he decided to start a YouTube channel because this is something he's wanted to do for a long time. And he, he called it, Dad, how do I, with a question mark? Okay, so his, his YouTube videos are, are basic, DIY tutorials, how to's of, you know, how to, how to unclog your, your bathtub, how to change your tire, how to um, use a ratchet, you know, things like that. And so you, you can kind of go through his playlist and stuff, how to fix most running toilets. This one was posted four days ago and it's got 52,000 views. Uh, this one, how to change a tire uh, was posted a month ago, how to check the air pressure in your tires and stuff. And anyways, this guy, he, what he's, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to provide guidance and mentorship that a father is meant to because he knows what it's like to be without a father. And if he can be that for somebody else, that's his dream. So he starts each video with, Hey kids, you know, and um, he'll, he'll insert somewhere in the video, some, you know, roll your eyes, dad joke type of thing. And uh, he even includes simple phrases like I'm proud of you and I love you. You know, just things that, that kids need to hear. And in just two months, like I said, so he started his channel two months ago. He's got two two million YouTube subscribers. Obviously, a lot of people have resonated with the videos that he says, Rob says, they are for anybody who feels that they need to learn something or be empowered to learn something. And the fathers, you know, the father figures in our lives that we were talking about, understanding, amazing, loving, you know, they play such a huge role to lead us, to support us to empower us, right? And they're a reflection of our heavenly father who knows all of our need even before we ask, right? Uh, The father who who faithfully provides in a million ways when we can only think of, of one. And as Jesus is wrapping up his time with his disciples here on earth, one thing he definitely wants to do is point their attention, our attention, to the heavenly father and the promise of the father. Notice what it says here in Acts chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. So this is Acts, the beginning of Acts, right after the resurrection. He's already been with the disciples now 40 days after the resurrection. He's teaching them and the narrative describes it like this and being assembled together with them. He, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for something. Wait for what? The the promise, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. Well, what promise was that? And the next verse kind of explains. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right. What was the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father was the promise to grant us his Holy Spirit. And according to Acts chapter 1, this was something they had to wait for. In other words, this promise hadn't yet been fulfilled. But, kind of a head-scratching moment, wasn't the Holy Spirit already present? Even before that time, even before the cross, even before the resurrection of Jesus, even before he's talking to the disciples right now, wasn't the Holy Spirit present on earth? Yes. And no. (laughs) All right, let's take a look at this, because this is a big deal. The promise of the Father, why would he make a promise for the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit was already present? Let's talk about this. You know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament mentions the Holy Spirit, at least according to the account that uh, Leroy Froome in his book, The Coming of the Comforter, outlines. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament 88 times, okay, 88 times. In the New Testament— 262 times okay now the old testament is 39 books long and those are pretty lengthy books the new testament is only 27 books long so the fact that you've got 88 mentions of the holy spirit in this portion and 262 that's nearly 10 times more per capita i don't know what you would say you know in, in population density but the frequency is 10 times more in the new testament yeah you know, i mean obviously in the old testament you've got Certain individuals that are filled with the Holy Spirit or even the Holy Spirit comes upon them I think some of the first mentions that come to my mind are Actually the artisans who were responsible for designing the tabernacle in the wilderness You know when Moses was instructing the children of Israel there I think it was uh, Bezalel or something like that yeah He was filled with the spirit to to construct the sanctuary um, you've got other people like Moses, the judges like Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson. Uh, you've got prophets like Samuel, even kings like Saul. Saul even spoke in tongues and prophesied. Or, I don't think it was speaking in tongues. It was, it was prophesying. And, um, anyways, the Old Testament is marked by manifestations of the Spirit's activity. So we see the Spirit working in or upon a few key individuals at certain times in Israel's history for a specific task for a specific message but there is a hint in the old testament that this wasn't god's full picture that there was more that god wanted for his people go with me in your bibles if you have them or on your on your phones go to numbers numbers chapter 11 old testament numbers chapter 11 all right, Numbers chapter eleven. This this is a time when Moses is still with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They're kind of walking through, journeying, 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 and obviously that journey was was a little bit tiresome and wearisome and full of complaints and disbelief or unbelief. Numbers chapter eleven. The the heading for chapter eleven it says the people complain. At least that's what it is in my Bible. And uh, Moses is talking things out with God. He's like, man, what what do we do here? And God gives Moses instructions, hey, gather 70 elders, and I'm going to take from the spirit that is upon you and fill these 70, okay? So there's a, there's a pretty uh, you know, exciting gathering of these 70 elders. What ends up happening is that only 68 of the 70 who are chosen, only 68 show up. And uh, as, as God is pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the 68 that are gathered, the two that didn't gather They experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit somewhere else in the camp. Joshua comes running. Hey, Moses, Moses, these two guys, Eldad and Medad, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but they're not here. And Moses is kind of like, you know, backing him off a little bit. And let's go to Numbers chapter 11, verse 28. We'll start in 28. Okay, so Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Speaking about Eldad and Medad who aren't gathered with the 70. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Now notice Moses' next words here. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put who his spirit upon them. Man, Moses senses the gravity of this. He's like, man, I know that the Holy Spirit needs to be poured out on these 70, but you know what's even more true? The Holy Spirit needs to be poured out on all God's people. This was the desire, not just of Moses, but of God. And there are Old Testament rumblings of this coming time. When sure enough, the Holy Spirit would be poured on all God's people. Just a couple of promises I want to uh, whiz through here. Isaiah 44 verse 3. If you're taking notes, you can write this stuff down. These are highlight worthy, memorization worthy. Isaiah 44 3 says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your who? On your descendants, not just on your few key spiritual giants. No, but on your descendants, my blessing on your offspring, right? Ezekiel 36, another promise of the Holy Spirit. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The next verse says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll keep my judgments and do them right, God wants to pour out His spirit so He can change us, transform us from the inside out. now, go with me to another old testament prophet let 's see if we can find this one. This is Joel chapter two, all right Joel chapter two these are in the the minor prophet section here it 's right after you got daniel hosea uh, I think right then Joel, okay, good <laughs> Joel chapter two Joel chapter two let 's go to verses twenty eight 29 and if you find it go ahead and say "I i found it oh wow good job all right here we go joel chapter 28 i'm sorry joel chapter 2 verses 28 29 notice again these hints these old testament rumblings of the outpouring of the spirit verse 28 says and it shall come to pass afterward that i will pour out my spirit on just a few people who are looking. No, no. That I will pour out my spirit on who? On all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on your men's servants and on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Right? In the, well, which days are those? After what will this promise be fulfilled? God is echoing here through the prophet Joel, Moses' plea in Numbers 11, all oh, that, all God's people would be prophets and filled with the Holy Spirit. This promise is for all mankind. Nobody's left out. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants, right? This promise is for all. But the realization of this promise, the realization of a, an all encompassing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it hinged upon something. And Joel 2, says afterward, or in those days. Well, what days? What is going to be the condition that unlocks the fulfillment of these promises? Go with me to the Gospel of John. The outpouring of the Spirit, I would say, hinged upon two specific factors. John chapter 7. Let's go to John chapter 7, then we'll also look at John 16. John 7. Going to the New Testament now. Jesus, he's living in, the, in between these two ages, so to speak, and he's initiating this new experience. John chapter 7, when you're there, say, I'm there. All right, John 7, let's read verses 37 to 39. The Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James, it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I that, that idea of thirst. If you remember that from Isaiah 44, we were reading it earlier. If anyone is thirsty, I will pour out water, floods on dry ground. Okay, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning who? Concerning the Spirit, okay? This he spoke concerning the Spirit. So when he's talking about satisfying their thirst and making rivers of living water come out of them, that water metaphor is a representation of the Holy Spirit. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, verse 39, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Factor number one, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit hinged upon the glorification of Jesus. Okay, do you follow that? Yes or no? Maybe you're asking yourself, well, what is that glorification? What, you know, when is that glorification? Yeah, you're tracking with that? Awesome. Okay, but there is another factor. There's another factor. Go with me to John 16. So just a few chapters later. John 16, Jesus, again, talking with his disciples. Uh, this is in the, the uh, kind of the, the last Uh, final address. We've looked at these chapters in the past, but notice this in verse seven, chapter 16, verse seven of the gospel of John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And the disciples are listening to this. What? (laughs) Come on, man. These are the best times of our life. When we're in your presence, there's fullness of joy. How can it be to our advantage that you go away? For if I do not go away, The helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I do what? If I depart, I will send him to you. Okay. So the second thing that that the outpouring of the Spirit is contingent upon is not just the glorification of Jesus, but also the departure of Jesus. The glorification of Jesus and the departure of Jesus. What in the world? What does this mean? When would Jesus be glorified? And why is that such a condition? Do you know when Jesus was glorified? Yeah, okay. Obviously, you know, he was glorified in several ways. Like, uh, you know, the, whenever he performed a healing, the people would praise him. Oh man, what's going on? Or maybe at his baptism, the voice of the heavenly father said, this is my son and who am I well pleased? Or on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, again, that voice from heaven is heard. But the glorification in terms of a technical, formal sense, Jesus identified it. Go to John chapter 12, right? So you're in chapter 16, go a few chapters earlier. I hope this is okay that we're just kind of... This is exciting for me. All right, here we go. John 12. This is so cool. John 12, verse 23 and 24. I hope you realize that when Jesus walked, talked, preached, healed for three and a half years in his public ministry, everything was so intentional. Everything was so deliberate. It was not robotic in any sense. This was the faith of Jesus, you know, following the the father's lead. And he was so filled with the spirit. Okay, verse 23. John 12, verse 23. All right, the Bible says, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be, what's the next word in your Bible? Glorify, okay? that the son of man should be glorified. Okay, so apparently there's an hour when the son of man is glorified or a specific time, we'll say. that the son of man should be glorified. And Jesus is recognizing that time is now. Okay, that time is now. You read through the Gospel of John, look for the word hour, my hour, the phrase, my hour. Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says my hour. He's talking about the time for him to be crucified. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So when he's talking about his hour, he's talking about the time in which he'll actually be buried in the earth. When he'll actually die he'll give up his life go to verse 31 and 32 same chapter now is the judgment of this world oh man that word now is big too john when he's writing this gospel he's also the same one who wrote revelation in revelation chapter 12 you get some of these similar hints now is the time okay now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out well, what, what time is that? Verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, as in on the cross, on the, the hill called Golgotha, now, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. When Jesus is talking about the hour that has come, when Jesus is talking about now is the judgment of this world and now is when the ruler of this world is cast out, it's when he is lifted up on the cross, the hour when Jesus would be glorified and lifted high, not on a throne of glory necessarily here on earth, but on a cruel cross, wearing a crown of thorns, reviled and mocked as a king of the Jews. And yet, sure enough, this crucified one, he is the king. <laughs> he is the king. And according to verse 31, it is through the cross that he is actually taking back the rulership of this world. So apparently, you know, up to this time, Lucifer, the fallen angel, the the arch enemy, the, the accuser of the brethren, he has been called the ruler of this world. He usurped dominion over this world. But because of the cross, Jesus now takes back the right to rule this world. Oh, man, this is so powerful. The cross earned Jesus the right to be crowned king, the conqueror over sin and the grave. So question, when was the hour? When when did Jesus become glorified? It was not, I mean, I guess what we can say is this, that the cross earned Jesus the right to be crowned king. But it wasn't until a few days later that Jesus was literally crowned king of kings. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's a psalm that kind of anticipates this time. It's psalm 24, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, for the King of glory shall come in. And then there's a, another chorus over here that says, Who is this King of glory? And then the other chorus says, Ah, the Lord, strong and mighty, He is the King of glory. When was that psalm, Psalm 24, literally fulfilled in the true Messiah? I would say It was upon the ascension of Jesus, right? Uh, When when Jesus ascended to heaven, go with me to Revelation chapter five. Oh man, this is fun. Okay, Revelation chapter five. We were actually just singing about this. I don't know if you realize this. In Revelation chapter five, Revelation chapter five, last book of the Bible. If you've gotten to your back cover, you've gone too far. Revelation chapter five, John sees a vision of heaven And when he's looking, he sees a throne. When you're there, say amen. First few verses of of Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Somewhere along the line, in this imagery, John sees God the Father sitting on his throne. He's got a scroll that's sealed up. This scroll must mean the destiny of humanity, something that is so significant, the right to rule. Why? Because as no one, in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So here's John's response in verse 4. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one was found worthy to take the throne next to God the Father. No one was found worthy to open what means everlasting life for humanity. Nobody's found, and John is crying his guts out. But, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll to loose its seven seals. These are powerful titles of the, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He hears these things. John kind of wipes his tears. He's, he's bucking up a little bit. So he, he wants to see who is, this, who is this king of glory and who does he see? Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So here is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. Who is this? It's someone who's been through a war and has come back on the other side alive. His name is Jesus. He's the lamb who has ransomed the slave. Oh, this is so beautiful. This is right here, what we're reading in Revelation chapter five as John is seeing that this is the king of glory taking his throne. This is the enthronement of Jesus. And how is it that he could come into the midst of that throne room and actually take the scroll? What makes him worthy? It's because he was the lamb slain. Right? It's because he was crucified that he can be crowned king. That is what makes him worthy. In Ephesians chapter four, as Paul writes about this, you know, he, he uses some imagery from from, you know, from those days when kings came into town as victors from their wars and battles. They would come into town. They would be welcomed by by the citizens. And, you know, the king would throw out gifts. They'd throw out money, you know, loots, uh, things that he looted from from the enemy armies. Notice how, how Paul uses that imagery. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he did what? When he ascended, you know, after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, when he ascended on high, what did he do? He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, when did he do that? According to Revelation chapter 5, This is when he's seated on the throne. What gifts did he give out when he took the throne? His spirit. He gave gifts. What gifts? The gift of the spirit. If you still have Revelation chapter 5 open, I don't know if you caught that last part of verse 6. You know, talking about the lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In chapter four, when the seven spirits are described, it's the seven spirits who stand before. uh, This is verse five, chapter four, verse five. The seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In other words, the sevenfold spirit of God was before the throne. In chapter 4, but when Jesus takes the throne, the seven spirits are sent out into all the earth. We're seeing Pentecost right here, right? We're seeing Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, oh man, I don't have this on the screen. In Acts chapter 2, you can turn your Bibles there if you have it. Acts chapter 2, when Peter and the other apostles who have been praying, praying, praying for 10 days, After spending 40 days with Jesus, they're praying for 10 days. It is now the fullness of time for the Pentecost. Okay, And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. In verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Man. And as Peter is now standing up before the crowd that gathers, what is going on here? Peter explains what's going on in verse 16 through 22. Do you know what he's quoting from? As he's trying to give people an understanding of what they're seeing, the manifestation of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he's quoting. From Joel chapter 2. Look at it. Acts chapter 2 verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Peter knows exactly what's going on. He's seen the risen Christ. He's seen the ascended Christ. He hasn't had the vision necessarily that John will eventually have in Revelation chapter five, but he knows this King of glory, he's going to come in through those gates. Those gates will lift up their heads. They'll say, yeah, this is the King of glory. And when he does, he'll lead captivity captive and give gifts to men. That's why when you get to verse 33, this is what is so central to Peter's thinking. Chapter two, verse 33, book of Acts, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. Are you connecting the dots? Peter was connecting the dots like crazy. This is awesome. Jesus, he says, is now glorified. He is sitting on the throne. Peter understands something. That before Pentecost, or in order for Pentecost to even be a reality, in order for the Holy Spirit to be fully poured out, Calvary must have had to come first. Calvary comes before Pentecost. Calvary comes before Pentecost. And this is prefigured in the Old Testament. You remember that time as the children of Israel were complaining about dying of thirst, right? God gives Moses instructions. You go to that rock. What was he supposed to do? You remember? The first time, the first time. And the second time, maybe we'll talk about another story. Yeah, he was supposed to strike the rock. This is Exodus chapter 17. He was supposed to strike the rock. God instructed Moses to strike the rock. And what would happen? Water would come out to satisfy the desert dry thirst of his people. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do we have this one up here? Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And all of them drank the same spiritual water. He's talking about the children of Israel walking through the wilderness. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, which kind of hints at the idea that as the children of Israel were walking, the rock was rolling. I, I don't know. I mean, did there... Just appear a rock. Anyways, their thirst was satisfied all throughout their trip. Anyway, okay, that's not the point that I'm trying to get to. (laughs) For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And who is that rock? That rock was Christ. Okay, so go, go strike that rock and water would come out, right? If that rock was Christ, it was to be a symbol, a representation of Jesus being stricken. And as a result, the Holy Spirit being given. Because Jesus was stricken, the Holy Spirit could be given. Man, it was an acted prophecy. So think about the historical sequence here. The victory of the cross and enthronement in heaven signalized on earth is signalized on earth by the outpouring of the Spirit. So the earthly signal of Jesus' enthronement in heaven was the outpouring of his spirit upon all people. What was the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father that was kind of hinted at as Moses, all oh, that all God's people would be filled. The promise that was was uh, prophesied by Joel, "I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh." That promise was realized when when Jesus was enthroned in heaven, having died, having been crucified and resurrected. So you think about the historical significance here: victory of the cross and enthronement in heaven eventually leads to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So think about the personal significance here. My experience, the outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit then, hinges entirely upon the experience of the cross. The victory of the cross, of the risen Christ sitting on the throne in my heart. I don't know if that makes sense. So historically speaking, the only way that the Holy Spirit could be poured out was if Jesus was crucified and seated on the throne. On a personal level, the only way to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my personal life is if Jesus is crucified and is sitting on my throne. Calvary must come before Pentecost. You follow that today? Calvary must come before Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, it's because Jesus sits on the throne as king and conqueror over sin. And it's only when Jesus sits as king on the throne of my heart, only when I've asked him to be conqueror over sin, will I ever experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is significant because I think this guards us from viewing the Spirit as some force that I control. If the experience of the Spirit in my life is only upon condition of being crucified with Christ and letting him sit on the throne of my heart, then it's not I control the Spirit, I use the Spirit, but he uses me. Yeah? So there's no Pentecost without Calvary. And I would say the, the flip side of that is true. There's no Calvary without Pentecost. And what do I mean by that? You know, Leroy Froome in his book, The The Coming of the Comforter, he mentions this idea and then he quotes from Desire of Ages. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, did I not put it up? Ta, I didn't. Oh, let me. He quotes from Desire of Ages, page 671. Essentially, the idea is this, that without the Holy Spirit, the merits of the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, could never be fully experienced in our personal lives. In other words, without Pentecost, there's no Calvary for you and me. Like it can just be the fact that Jesus died, but the experience of him as the crucified Savior, that is the work of the Holy Spirit too. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. Amen. How we need the Holy Spirit. And I just want to appeal to me. If you desire the Holy Spirit and to seek the promise of the Spirit in your life by first receiving Jesus as the crucified King in your life. You want Pentecost? Go to Calvary. So the the take-home challenge is simply this. Go to Calvary. What do I mean by that? I don't know. Maybe you've heard, I think it's Desire of Ages also, page 83. She talks about taking, oh, it would be well for us if we took a thoughtful hour every day. Reflecting upon the life of Christ, the scenes from the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. Yeah. And I talk about going to Calvary. Maybe this involves just personally, intentionally, and on a daily frequent basis, taking a thoughtful hour to reflect on the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. I like that hymn says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? were you there when they crucified well what is the point of that I, of course i wasn't there no but you can experience that right we can be there right so carve out maybe what, what's your what is it that the holy spirit is inviting you to do maybe it's an hour maybe it's a half hour or 15 minutes to just look upon the cross to go to calvary and when you do receive him as your savior Put yourself in the shoes as a centurion who says, oh, truly, this is the son of God. And I tell you what, when you do, you can receive him as king, ask him to take the throne of your heart to crush and conquer sin in your life. And when that rock is struck, the water pours out. Do you want that today? Yeah. I would just appeal to you this week, make a commitment. I will go to Calvary. I will go to Calvary. And let the promise of the Spirit be fulfilled in my life. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for who you are. Because who you are makes all the difference. These promises that we read about, they're not just wishful thinking. These are promises from a faithful father who loves us more than his own existence. And God, this promise, this promise of the Spirit is now available to us because Jesus sits as King. And Lord, we want this to be true, not just in the historical sense, but in the personal sense. Pray for each heart, for each home that is represented here. For those of us who are joining uh, online through Zoom, God, we pray that you would do a work even this week to take us to Calvary, that we would receive you as our Savior day after day, that we would look to you as our King who conquers sin, that we would allow you to sit on the throne of our hearts. God, if you would be glorified like that, draw our hearts to you this week in a way that we've never experienced before. We give you permission, Lord, to fulfill this promise. As we go to Calvary, may we experience Pentecost personally. We pray this in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let all God's people say, amen.